Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the last six or seven weeks in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah tells us the story of God's uh, returning his exiled people back to the city of Jerusalem, back to their holy and chosen land, and then under Nehemiah's leadership, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, Nehemiah actually completes the wall. So now the people of God who have come back there have a secure uh, place to live. And now as we come into Nehemiah 7, his attention turns not just to the rebuilding of the wall, but to the community of people that are now rooted there, who are now living there. And so we're going to look this morning at Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah 7 is a bit of a difficult chapter. It's another one of these chapters in Nehemiah um, that I just didn't feel right about visiting on a lay reader because it is so full of weird names. And so uh, I, will, um, I will attempt to read part of it for us, and then I'll kind of offer a running commentary through the rest of it, but it's a rather lengthy chapter. Um, if you would, though, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read Nehemiah chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 13. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed... I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Then my God put put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Benah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pahath-Moab, namely the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. And we will stop there. (laughs) This too uh, is the word of our God. It is given to us in love and it is true. You can be seated. We could essentially have, after verse 13, said yada, 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 because... uh, (laughs) Nehemiah goes on for a full 73 verses, uh, mostly uh, lists of strange names and big numbers. 
And that is the majority of our chapter. If you were uh, to compile a list of the 10 most boring chapters of the Bible, uh, this chapter might find its way onto it. When we come to it with modern eyes, we go, who are these people? Why does any of this matter? Uh, It can seem to uh, enforce what many of our assumptions are, which is that the message of the Bible uh, is largely boring and irrelevant. Uh, Words and names that happened thousands of years ago that bear no relevance uh, to our life today. It doesn't seem uh, to matter much to us, but it would matter uh, if your name was one of the names on the list or if it was your family's names on the list. Right? We might rather Nehemiah have said, I built a wall and then a bunch of people moved in. But God doesn't deal with just a random bunch of people. Uh, He deals with you and me, and he deals with us by name. The good news uh, of the gospel is not generic, right? It's not just that God loves people. Uh, It is particular. It's God loves you, and God loves me. These verses are the fulfillment uh, of a significant amount of Israel's hope in the prophets. Right, Israel's deepest hope after the exile was that God would gather them back to himself, make them safe and rooted, sheltered and protected. And so Nehemiah wants to make sure that those names are recorded. This is the fulfillment of what God promises in Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. I've called you by name, and I've brought you back to myself that I might live with you. Right? These people mattered to God. And we matter to God. You matter to God. Right? Jesus also says that the good shepherd calls his own by name in John chapter 10. And he leads them out and leads them to himself. People matter to God. You and I matter to God. These people mattered. The 2006 documentary, uh, God Grew Tired of Us tells the story of the lost boys of Sudan. Some of you may have known this story. Uh, in, the, in the early 1980s, there was a civil war in Sudan between the largely Muslim North and the significantly Christian South. In 1986, the government of Sudan uh, basically declared that every male in this Christian Southern Sudan should be killed. And so the uh, lost boys are the name that's been given to the orphans of that conflict who left by foot out of their home. They walked by foot out of their home in the southern Sudan, first to Ethiopia where they were put in a refugee camp. When they were expelled from that camp, they walked another thousands of miles towards Nigeria where they settled. For a total of five years, they journeyed by foot, exiles and orphans from their home. The name of this documentary, God Grew Tired of Us, uh, comes from a quote by John Dow, one of the uh, lost boys who's interviewed in the film and who wrote a memoir. And it comes from a quote that has always stuck with me. He says this, as a boy, I thought God got tired of us and he wanted to finish us. When I think back on it, it was so bad anyway, you can't even think of it. You can even regret why you were born. Why were you born? Now I wonder. I'm again now wearing clothes, feeling very happy. And so anything, everything has an end. Even if there's a problem in Sudan, still maybe one time, one day, one minute, it will come to an end and we can go home. 
these lost boys uh, were, through the UN, rooted uh, mostly to cities in the U.S. after they left Nigeria. I got the privilege of knowing some in Memphis. Uh, there's a large population in Minneapolis and Chicago. But since southern Sudan has become its own nation, many have left and gone back uh, to their home to set up a new land and a new people. You know, Lord willing, most of us will never know uh, the particular pain that those boys went through, exiled and orphaned, cast out from our home in the midst of war. But I think we can all identify with that feeling of rootlessness, that feeling of wondering if God has grown tired of us, of whether or not we genuinely matter to God, whether he sees us, whether he sees us in our suffering, whether he knows us in our struggles, whether we really in a genuine way matter to him. I think this is one of the hardest elements uh, of the Christian faith to believe, that we really do matter to the God and creator of all things. So much of our life tells us that we don't matter, right? You may have picked up that message as a child, feeling like uh, you were always an afterthought. You may have picked up that message somehow in the shame of the life that you've lived, feeling like, man, I couldn't possibly matter to God, maybe other people. You might have felt it in the feelings of rejection that you've gone through in life. You may feel it in the midst of suffering or struggle in your life, wondering, does God even see or know? But friends, the point of this chapter, as strange as it might seem to us, is that we matter to God. Our lives aren't doomed to anonymous exile, but that God wants to gather us to himself and to dwell with us in real, living, vital relationship, that he will gather us and he'll dwell with us. First, we see in this chapter how God gathers us to himself. We've said this is largely a list of names, names and numbers. So it gives you the names of the heads of the family and then the various members of the family by number that come home to Jerusalem uh, here. Every one of these names uh, has suffered. Every one of the people on this list knows what it is to wonder if they really are included or excluded in God's people. You know, the fall uh, what, what, what the Bible describes in the first chapters of Genesis, our sin and our estrangement from God, the fall of the entire world from the way that it was created and intended to be to the way that it is, right? The fall has affected each and every one of us. Every one of us is broken in some particular way by our fall from grace. In this chapter, we see it first in verse 6, where the people who return are simply called those who came up out of captivity, those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. These people are exiles. These are homeless men and women. People who generations ago had lost their homeland, been carried off into Babylon, who now had actually seen Babylon fall. So Assyria has now come and conquered Babylon. So they're now exiles in a conquered country who are now ruled over by another king. Surely over the span of these decades that these men and women lived in exile, they must have felt hopeless. They must have wondered if God had simply overlooked them, if God had forgotten about them, if there really was hope for them of ever really being restored. As the decades added up, they must have felt hopeless. Furthermore, there's some of these people uh, in exile who have other uh, things that would make them feel they didn't belong. If you look at verse 61 a portion that we did not read. 
We meet a group of people, uh, we're told, who come up with them to Jerusalem, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether or not they belonged to Israel. So there's some of the people uh, among this group of Israelite exiles who got back to Jerusalem and couldn't even prove that they belonged. They couldn't produce the necessary paperwork to prove their genealogy back to whose sons and daughters they were. And yet these people too come up, come and find their way back to Jerusalem people of questionable origin and parentage, wondering, I'm sure, whether or not at some point they're going to be told they don't belong. There's another group of people that we meet in verse 64. These are people who were thought to be priests but couldn't prove uh, their lineage as priests. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So there's a group of people who are, who are pretending to be priests or perhaps thought they could be priests, who then it comes to find out, no, they weren't. They weren't. But they're still included in the people, but they're told they can't serve in this way as priests. Nehemiah, when he draws up this genealogy, intentionally and deliberately paints a very, very broad and inclusive list of people that are included in Jerusalem. It's a list of exiles, rebels, and outsiders who had every reason to wonder whether or not uh, they would be kicked out once the walls were finished. Right, remember by this time, so this is the list of the names who returned from Babylon to Israel. And if you've been with us through the series, you remember that not everyone followed Nehemiah. Right, as Nehemiah sought to build the wall, as he required sacrifice and hard work out of the people, There are other people on the outside, most notably this man named Tobiah, who was one of the Israelites who came back from from Babylon, who wanted to oppose his work, who tried to convince people not to rebuild the wall. Because if they rebuilt the wall, then the Assyrians would get upset and they'd come. And so you had a group of people that followed Nehemiah, some of the nobles, some of their families. But then you had this other group of people that followed those who resisted Nehemiah, the people who followed Tobiah. And yet when Nehemiah comes to draw up the census of who is included in the people of Israel, it includes both those who followed him and obeyed him, as well as Tobiah and those who followed his way, right? It included both those who Nehemiah would have viewed as allies and friends, as well as those who up till this point had been enemies of Nehemiah. Because again, this is a broad picture of who belongs. He's going back and saying, all of you, All of you have been gathered by God and brought back here. Exiles, rebels, outsiders, you you share a common story and you belong. You too belong here in this place. He goes on to say, uh, if you look at at verse 4, when he describes the nature of the city, I love this description. He says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had yet been rebuilt. This is essentially an invitation to everyone who's getting this news that the city's really big, the walls are finished, and there's lots of good real estate, right? The the city's finished, but it's not populated yet. The city's finished, but there's no houses built yet. But it's broad and big and wide, and there's room for you. There's room for more people to come in and to build. Friends, this is exactly what God does for us in Christ Jesus. He gathers us in from all of the different places that we've been exiled. 
He brings us back in from the places that we've wandered uh, in search of life. Right? Every one of us, the scriptures say, wander off from our home. Every one of us is like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, who leave our father's house and go looking for life on our own, who squander our lives and dream of being accepted back into the father's house, welcomed back into his family, embraced with open arms. And in this strange chapter full of odd names, we see God the Father welcoming back his exiled children, as broken and as difficult as they have been to him. In saying the city is built, the walls are safe, it's strong, you can be sheltered here, you can be safe from your enemies here, come back, come back and dwell with God in your home. Friends, this has to remain the church's posture in the world. Listen, uh, we live, we all know, uh, in a world marked by deep disagreements, right? It feels like more now than ever before. Uh, at least in my lifetime. We have, we're marked by our political disagreements. We're marked by our cultural disagreements. We're marked by our ethical disagreements. Right? We sometimes feel, don't we, uh, like these Israelites. You had the party of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, I'm sorry, you had the party of Nehemiah. You had the party of Tobiah. You had people that differed so deeply who said horrible things to one another, who disagreed in almost every imaginable way. And yet when Nehemiah is one of our more skilled leaders in the Bible, when he goes about recording his census, he makes a point of drawing out their commonality. He says, friends, we may have disagreed on whether or not we build the wall, how we do it, how we go about it, but we are all just exiles. We've all been homeless. We've all been wandering. We all have the same God who's now gathered us back. There's room for you here. You belong here. There's incredible wisdom in recognizing that no matter how you may disagree with your neighbors, with your family, that there is commonality and that we are all broken by a fallen world, right? All of us, whether we acknowledge ourselves to be Christians or far from the church and faith, can identify with that common experience of trying to figure our way through a broken world, a world where we suffer and struggle, a world where we're trying to figure out how to order our lives and our relationships and our common life, how to find peace in our inner world and peace with God. We're all broken by the same fall. We're common in that. And so Nehemiah goes back and he reminds them of that, that we're all broken in the same kinds of ways, though we may differ. And then welcoming people back inside the walls, inside of the comfort and strength and security that God has built for them. The walls of the church are always for protection, not for exclusion, right? The walls around Jerusalem were meant to protect the people from external threats. They weren't made to keep outsiders on the outside, right? The walls, remember we talked about when Nehemiah was building the walls, it felt like every 10 feet they built a gate, right? That it seemed to be more gates than walls even. And that that's a marker of the church's posture. Yes, we have boundaries. We have walls to protect the doctrine of the church, to make sure that what we believe stays true to what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. But the walls are meant to offer shelter, to offer protection, to offer what Jesus calls when he describes the church. He says it's like a mustard seed that grew into a tree that provided a shelter for all of the birds of the air. That the church could be a sheltering place where God's mercy and his love and his protection is felt uh, by all of his exiled children 
who he's brought home. And so this is the story of God gathering his people. And he's gathering his people into the city of Jerusalem. He's gathering us towards Christ for a very particular purpose. And it's that he might live his life with us. That he might dwell with us in a living communion. So let's look at that in this chapter. How do we see that God means to dwell with us by grace? Well, for the first 38 verses, uh, he gives this list of names and numbers. These people came and these people came and these people came. But then in verse 39, he slows down his list a good bit. He's no longer just listing the various people who returned to Jerusalem. But he goes into a few very particular groups of people. He says in verse 39, the priests, the sons of Jedidiah, namely the house of Yeshua, and he goes in and numbers them particularly. Verse 43, the Levites, who are another order of priests who served in the temple. And then verse 46, the temple servants, the sons of Zihah and the sons of Hashapah, etc. So he goes on and does this. So he takes his genealogy and he slows it way, way down and says, now these are the priests, and these are the Levites, and these are the temple servants. You know, Nehemiah was not, um, narrowly speaking, a religious leader, right? Nehemiah was something more like what we'd call a civic leader, even a civil engineer. He was somebody who arranged basically a building project uh, for the infrastructure of Jerusalem. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. But he recognized that though his calling was towards this very practical consideration of building a wall, that all of the work that he was doing, all of the wall building and engineering and organizational work was for one purpose, so that God could live with his people again in safety. Right? He recognized that the point of it all wasn't just a wall for a wall's sake, but so that his people could worship God and that God could live with them again in the temple. And so that's why he takes a real care to lay out the fact that the priests were heavily involved in this and that the priests at the temple were some of the first ones to return. And so while Nehemiah is going about the business of building the wall, they're also, uh, under Ezra and Zerubbabel, going about the work of rebuilding the temple. Because the point of it all, all the point of God gathering his people back into Jerusalem was so that they could worship him again so that he could make his home and his life with them again in the temple. Nehemiah leads them back, uh, but it's the priests who are at the very center of what uh, he believes God is doing there. You know, what did a priest do in the ancient world? What did a priest do uh, in Jerusalem? Well, a priest essentially represented people to God, right? There were other people who represented God towards his people, right? The prophets did a lot of that. They spoke God's word towards the people. The kings did a lot of that. When they ruled well, they were meant to be a representative of God's kingship to his people. But the priest's role was different. The priest's role was to represent the people back to God. It was their job in the temple to to keep the human side of God's covenant, to offer the sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, right? So God gave them their law, His law, yet continually the people fell short and broke the law. And so it was the priests who offered the sacrifices. It was the priests who offered the prayers. It was the priests who served to mediate the covenant, God's relationship with his people. And of course, uh, the priesthood was a job in Israel that took uh, many, many hundreds of people. 
It was a round-the-clock affair. There were constant sacrifices being made in the temple. And why is that? Well, it's because Israel, like us, sinned constantly. Right? They, you can look at how, how sometimes the scriptures seem a world removed from us, but these are people just like us. These are people who daily fell short of what God wanted for them, day, daily fell short of His law. And so day after day, day and night, week after week, month after month, priests made sacrifices in the temple. The temple, though it was beautiful and gold-plated and, and wonderful to look at, was also a bloody mess. It also had a lot in common with a butcher shop, where just animal after animal was sacrificed uh, for the sins of the people. And of course, the New Testament tells us that these priests could never finally deal with sin. Right? They could make offerings. They did what they were called to do. God called the people to make these sacrifices as a reminder that sin had consequence, that sin led to death, that sin required atonement. But their sacrifices, you could never, never kill enough animals to ultimately deal with the problems between us and God, the problems at the root of our human life. And so one of the ways that the New Testament describes Jesus is as our great high priest, right? The priest that all of these other priests only pointed to dimly, right? But that he is the great high priest, the priest who made one sacrifice once and for all to forever deal with the problem of human sin. So Jesus is not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice. He's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we wonder what we're going to celebrate in just over in about two weeks at Good Friday, Right, The reason that the crucifixion of the Son of God can ever be called good is because that's where we believe God once and for all dealt with the problem of human sin. One priest making one sacrifice. Right, The priest represented the people to God. We can kind of wrap our heads around the way that, God the way that Jesus, God and man in flesh, represents God to us, right? He reveals God, he reveals his character. But then he also represents us to God. He's the one who lived the life that the law requires of us, that perfect, sinless human life, and yet died on our behalf. So just as Nehemiah pauses here, he gives this list of all of the people gathered back to Jerusalem. And at their center are these priests making it possible for these exiles to live in intimate union with God. So the story of the church, our story, the story of God gathering us back to himself from all of the places we've wandered, has a priest at its center, Jesus, our great high priest, who means that we can gather to God and we gather towards him. We do so in the full knowledge that we are forgiven sinners whose sin has been dealt with in Jesus. Therefore, when God gathers us to himself, our life with him is the most important thing. Right, friends, it's easy in our lives. You know, we can identify with this journey from exile to home. We can identify with, with the journey that God has us on. Our journey sometimes seems hard. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes it seems mysterious to us. Where is God leading us? Right? What's God doing in my life? Why am I suffering in this way? Why am I still struggling with these same sins? Why am I wrestling with these broken relationships? 
right? In the journey that God's got me on, where is he taking me and what is he doing? This story tells us that the point of it all, the end of our journey is God himself, right? What God's doing in your life, whether things are good or things are hard, right? Whether you experience yourself to be full of joy right now or full of sorrow, what God is doing in your life is always the same thing, gathering you to himself, so that he could live his life in union with you. Right? God himself is the point. You're dwelling with God. You're living your life in the assurance of God's love for you is always the point of what God's doing in your life. This means in our lives that things like worship and prayer are never simply a means to some other end. Right? Yes, we pray for things that we need, things that we want, things that we, uh, that we desire. Yes, when we worship, we, we do experience uh, sometimes a sense of God's nearness to us. But the point of worship isn't that we feel something. And the point of prayer isn't that we get stuff. The point of all of it is God himself. That we learn to enjoy God for who he is, for his love to us, for his grace to us. God himself uh, is the point of everything. And us learning to live with him by grace. So like these first Israelites, God gathers us to himself. He lives with us by his love. And then I love this last little bit. If you look at verse 70, he ends uh, with this. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor, that's Nehemiah, gave to the, gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minus of silver. And some of the heads of the father's household gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minus of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. I love this, that God gathers these people aliens and exiles, to himself. He lives with them by grace. And then he calls them to participate in his work. Right? He calls them to give towards the continued building of his kingdom, towards the continued building of Jerusalem and the temple and the worship there. Right? He calls them to give towards those who've been gathered towards God and who's made his life with them. He calls them to building up the city so that other people can be gathered in, so that he can dwell with still more people. And the beauty of the gospel is just that, that we are gathered to God. He does live with us in his grace, and then he calls us to lives of generosity, towards lives of self-giving love, partnering with him in his work. It says that Nehemiah went first in his giving. If you notice that, if you look, he gave uh, a vastly uh, uh, indiscriminate amount towards this. There's a juxtaposition between the amount that he gave Versus the amount that the rest of the fathers gave, right? He gives 1,000. They give 20,000, all the rest of the people together. He leads the way for them in his generosity. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, though he was rich, for our sake became poor. He does that as a way of urging people towards generosity. He says, look at the generosity of Jesus, who gave out of the riches of heaven to gain us and to build his church and to build his kingdom. So we imitate him and join him in our laying down of our lives and giving generously.
And so we are going to do that now. Uh, we are going to join in the work of God's kingdom through giving, through giving whatever amount that we have towards the work of the church here at Christ Church in town and through our partners, uh, the building of his kingdom around the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for the way that you gave your life for ours. The way that your life is a model for us of limitless generosity. Lord, we thank you that in all of our wanderings, in all of our straying from you, that you never stopped pursuing us, seeking to gather us to yourself, that you might dwell with us in love and grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live our lives in light of that grace. Help us, Lord, to desire to dwell with you, to want you more than we want, the things that you bring into our lives, even the blessings of our lives. Lord, help us to love you in response to your great love for us. Lord, take these offerings that we bring and use them for your glory and for the building of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.